caring for the poor is important. It's very important, but it can so easily become all-consuming and it must not be allowed to eclipse or deprioritize the ministry of prayer and preaching. It is through prayer and preaching that we offer something unique and distinctly Christian. It is through prayer and preaching that we address the root brokenness of the human condition. At the end of the day, the church is not a social agency. It is a gospel agency. And the church grows when it organizes around her God-given priorities. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. The church grows when it organizes around her God-given priorities. That's definitely true, but historically, it's been hard to keep those priorities in proper perspectives and in the right order. It's easy to let good things grow to the point where they squeeze out everything else. That can happen. It did happen, and here in Act 6, we see the church responding in the appropriate way. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Acts chapter 6. In this chapter, we see the church responding to the miraculous uh, growth that it has been experiencing over the last several chapters. On multiple occasions, Luke has told us that the church has been growing and expanding rapidly. He said in Acts 2, 41, that 3,000 souls were baptized in a single day. He told us in Acts 2, 47, that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In Acts 4, 4, he says, many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. In Acts 5, 14 and following, we are told that more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So the church is growing. People in Jerusalem are hearing the gospel and getting saved and being baptized. And people in the countryside are coming in and they are hearing the gospel. They're seeing the signs and wonders And they're being drawn into the reach and care of the Christian church. So much so that in Acts 5.28, the high priest accuses the apostles of filling Jerusalem with their teaching. That's a marvelous accusation. And this is a season of unparalleled growth and spiritual blessing. Now, here in Acts 6, we see the church responding to that blessing and that growth with reorganization and delegation. The church had 12 apostles when there were 120 people in a room. Now there are upwards of 10 or 15,000 people, men, women, and children, all across the city. So the apostles are starting to feel a little stretched. Now, notice that they don't appoint more apostles. Only Jesus can do that. Rather, they appear in this story to create an entirely new ministerial office, the office of deacon. That word is used in its verbal form in verse 2. The office itself will evolve and develop over the New Testament canon. But this story shows us how the need was identified and originally met by a growing and spirit-led church. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. 
Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Let's just pause and notice a few things here. Let's notice, first of all, that believers are now regularly being referred to by Luke as disciples. The 12 minus Judas and plus Matthias are now called apostles, indicating their special authority and commission. And the believers generally are referred to as disciples, a word that literally means learners. I think that's interesting. I think that's worth seeing. Christians are by definition learners. There, there is a certain content to be learned as well as an example to be followed, right? There, there, is a, there is an essential belief and there's an essential behavior. Both are important. Sometimes you'll hear people talking nowadays as if behavior is the only thing that matters. They'll say, well, you know, I behave like Jesus. So whether I have the right beliefs or not doesn't really matter. I have the right behavior. Well, that would be just as silly as saying that you have the right beliefs, but not the right behavior. Obviously, these things are not the same, but just as obviously they have to go together. I think we do damage to the Christian faith when we elevate either one of those things at the expense of the other. Secondly, notice that benevolent ministry, ministry targeted at urgent human need, was part of the original culture of the church. And of course, we're not surprised by that. Jesus was often seen in the Gospels responding to human needs by healing or feeding or helping in some way or another. And so if we're going to follow Jesus, then obviously we're going to get involved in those sorts of activities. And so we see here in the early church. Thirdly, we should notice that the problem in focus here was as much about culture and language as it was about growth. The Hellenists referred to are Greek-speaking Jews. They had a different language, they had a different culture than the Hebrews, the Aramaic-speaking Jews of Jerusalem and Judea. By and large, the Aramaic-speaking Jews of Jerusalem and Judea looked down on the Greek-speaking Jews of the Diaspora. They were seen as compromised and unhelpfully cosmopolitan. And this is just a reminder that whenever the gospel crosses cultural boundaries, there are going to be challenges. It seems here that somehow, some, in some way, the food distribution got caught up, got hung up on some kind of cultural barrier. Maybe the delivery people were Aramaic-speaking Jews and they didn't want to go in the homes of Greek-speaking Jews. Or maybe the Greek-speaking Jews just couldn't communicate with the delivery people and so the requests for food weren't getting through. We don't know. We just know that multicultural church is hard, but it's worth the effort. And here in this story, we see the church making that effort. Now, before we move on to the next session, let me, let me just maybe make one more observation This whole breakthrough, this breakthrough in terms of a new leadership office, a new approach to ministry, this whole breakthrough came about as a result of a complaint. I think that's interesting. Not all complaints are bad, right? I mean, a lot of complaints are bad, but not all complaints are bad. And sometimes, maybe even all the time, it's worth really listening to the complaints that arise out of our ministries, out of our churches. If if they're just silly, then by all means, delete them, put them in the trash can. But if there's something legitimate there, pray about it, receive it, think about it, and if necessary, make changes. That's what we see in this story. Thanks be to God. Verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of of the word. This is so incredibly important for us to see. The church grows not 
by serving tables in the Acts of the Apostles. The church grows by preaching the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, right? That's the main thing. That's the effective thing. That's the powerful thing. Luke makes that point again and again and again. He's making it here in the story. As soon as they free up the apostles to get back to prayer and preaching the word, church starts to grow again. Look at verse 7, right? And the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. It says the same thing in Acts 12, 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Again in Acts 19.20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. For Luke, growth is by definition growth in the word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. That has to be the priority focus of the Christian church. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do compassionate, benevolent ministry. We should do that. This story is about the church doing that. But it's about the church figuring out a way to do that such that the priority remains on prayer and the ministry of the word that's so important for us to see. Caring for the poor is important. It's very important, but it can so easily become all-consuming and it must not be allowed to eclipse or deprioritize the ministry of prayer and preaching. It is through prayer and preaching that we offer something unique and distinctly Christian. It is through prayer and preaching that we address the root brokenness of the human condition. At the end of the day, the church is not a social agency. It is a gospel agency. And the church grows when it organizes around her God-given priorities. And that is what we see in the story. The apostles invent another leadership office, another layer in the church so that they can keep their focus on the ministry of the word. Now, some scholars will get very precise here and say say that perhaps we're not witnessing exactly the invention of the diaconate here. That comes later, probably in reflection upon the effectiveness of this more ad hoc decision. Be that as it may, what we see is the leadership of the church innovating and delegating such that they are enabled to maintain their proper focus. And it works. Pastor Paul, let's park on that for just a minute. I love the idea of the church being free to innovate on things like structure and management so as to make sure that the main thing stays as the main thing. That feels brilliant, but it's also a little risky. How do we know where we're free to innovate and where we're not? Because obviously some things in the church aren't supposed to change ever. So when is flexibility and innovation good and when is it bad? Yeah, that's a great question. I think in general we would say that we aren't encouraged to be flexible or innovative when it comes to doctrine. Uh, Paul said to Timothy, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's 2 Timothy 2, 2. So you get the idea that faithfulness is what the Bible is after when it comes to doctrine. But as this story in Acts 6 reminds us, flexibility is permitted and even encouraged when it comes to form. A few weeks ago in our preaching workshop, I stumbled across a really helpful quote from John Piper. He says, What we find in the New Testament is a stunning degree of non-specificity for worship as an outward form. 
and a radical intensification of worship as an inward experience of the heart, close quote. So he says that with respect to worship forms, but I think the same could be said about any form, structural forms, for example. The Bible doesn't say how many committees a church should have. The Bible doesn't provide a set of rules for how to run a congregational meeting. There is a stunning lack of specificity in the Bible with respect to the details of institutional governance. And so we don't need to be dogmatic. We shouldn't be dogmatic about such things. Obviously, we're going to have to land somewhere on all these questions. We're going to have to adopt certain forms and make use of them. But we definitely shouldn't be excommunicating other churches because they adopt different forms. And likewise, as we see in this text, we shouldn't be so committed to our preferred forms that we're unable to adapt and modify our structures so as to respond to new challenges and opportunities. So you said two things there I want to explore a little further. You said, first of all, that we have to park somewhere when it comes to form. And I assume you mean park somewhere as a local church. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. You can't waver back and forth on a weekly basis on matters of form. That will lead to chaos. A church has to park on some of these things. So, for example, the church where I pastor has elected elders who function as the directors of the corporation, to use language that CRA understands. They oversee the finances and legal polity of the church. They are unpaid. They are lay elders. And we have a constitution that explains what they're responsible for and what I, as the pastor, am responsible for and what the congregation is responsible for. And making changes to that document is actually a pretty big deal. They modified the Constitution in 2006, just before I arrived, and then we had to update it again in 2013 because of some changes to the charitable laws in Ontario. But we can't be changing the rules for how we operate every three weeks. That would lead to absolute chaos. So we have to agree on some forms and then run with them. But just because we land on these things and run with them doesn't mean we look at these sorts of decisions the same way we look at matters of doctrine. I like the concept of elected elders, but I am radically committed to the doctrine of Christ's substitutionary atonement. I have a different level of commitment to those two things. All right, yeah, I get that, but that also leads me to the other thing I wanted to mention. You said that we shouldn't be excommunicating each other over matters of form. Did I say that? <laughs> well, you did, something like that. <laughs> I think you said that we shouldn't be excommunicating other churches over matters of form. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, what I'm getting at there is the idea that we mustn't consider matters of form as first-level issues. I, I can't be in missionary partnership with someone who denies the Trinity. Now, of course, I can be friendly and neighborly with somebody like that, but I can't plan a church or co-host a Bible study with someone who denies a core doctrine of the Christian faith. But I could co-host a Bible study with an Anglican friend, for example, who loves Jesus. If we happen to live in the same neighborhood and we wanted to co-lead an alpha program or something like that to reach out to our friends, we could 100% do that together, even though he doesn't have the same opinions and preferences that I have in the area of leadership forms. His church has a priest and a bishop, but they don't have elected elders. That's okay. I disagree with him about that, but as long as we agree on Jesus, the Bible, the Trinity, the atonement, etc., then we can host that Bible study together. We couldn't plant a church together, but we could do some things together. And of course, we definitely shouldn't be anathematizing each other. That's the point I'm trying to make here. All right, that, that makes total sense. So let's go back to the decision that the early church made to appoint these seven men to oversee the food ministry to the Greek-speaking Jewish converts. 
Tell us a little bit more about these guys, because I've often thought of this as the origin of church deacons, but then there at the end you said that might be stretching things a little bit too far. So unpack that for us a little. Yeah, it's easy to be a bit sloppy in our language here, and I've been guilty of that myself. It's probably best not to refer to these men as the original deacons or something like that. That isn't really what's going on here. I, Howard Marshall, in his commentary says, Although the verb serve comes from the same root as the noun, which is rendered into English as deacon, it is noteworthy that Luke does not refer to the seven as deacons. Their task had no formal name. The choice of seven men corresponded with Jewish practice in setting up boards of seven men for particular duties, close quote. So the function of the seven in Acts is actually closer to the function of what we call elders today. Remember, the money for the food ministry had originally been laid at the apostles' feet. They were responsible for overseeing the funds and the distribution of what the funds had been given for. But now here, with that ministry expanding dramatically, they make the decision to appoint an oversight board. An oversight board is what we typically call a group of elders, and it is elders that we see later in Acts overseeing the church money. So in Acts 11.30, when the church in Antioch wants to send money to the church in Jerusalem, it says, they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul, Acts 11.30. So actually, it seems that what's happening here is that the church in Jerusalem is setting up an oversight committee to manage the food ministry, specifically the food ministry to Greek-speaking Jews. So later in the same commentary, I. Howard Marshall says again, it would seem rather that the two groups were in close contact, even if they worshiped separately in their own languages, and that the 12 had a general authority over the whole church, while the seven were leaders of the Greek-speaking section, close quote. So whether you want to call them deacons or elders isn't really the point. The point is that the church understood themselves as having the ability to be flexible when it came to leadership and management forms. Jesus never said anything about elders or deacons in the Gospels. There's, there's no obvious Old Testament precedent that they could directly appeal to. And yet here we see the church inventing a whole new layer of leadership and structure, and God blessed it. That's the point. On the other side of Pentecost, with our new hearts and with the gift of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God being taught accurately and authoritatively by Jesus, it's almost as if God trusts us to handle some of these decisions relating to method and form. Now, if you don't understand that, then you'll find yourself fighting holy wars over all kinds of things that don't ultimately matter. Churches that grow permit a fair degree of flexibility with respect to form. Hmm, that's really helpful. I, I really like the distinction there between matters of doctrine and matters of external form. Let's jump back into the story now at verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom 
and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. We'll finish up the story of Stephen in the next chapter, but we should probably notice here in passing that while signs and wonders are most commonly associated with the ministry of the apostles in the book of Acts, they are not exclusively associated with the apostles. Stephen is not an apostle. And yet Luke tells us that Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great signs and wonders among the people. That's a useful reminder to us and a bit of a caution against over-regulating the work of the Spirit. Yes, yes, there is something special about the apostles, but there is also something general and universal about the Holy Spirit. And both of those truths need to be kept in mind as we work our way through this important story. There are special and unrepeatable events in the book of Acts, but there's also a pattern and an example for us to follow. The trick, of course, is sorting out which is which. But clearly, Stephen is not an apostle. We are told simply that he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. May that be said of you and of me. Listen, Stephen was a regular person, and yet he did wonders and signs among the people. And when he spoke, it was with great wisdom and the Spirit. I see no reason not to pray that the same might one day be said of you and of me and of many others in our churches. Why not? God is sovereign. He can still adorn the gospel however he chooses. And we can still pray like they do in Acts 4.30 for the Lord to stretch out his hand to heal and to do wonders through the name of Jesus Christ. We can do that. And God can answer or not as it serves his will and purpose. I would like to see everything in this chapter represented in the church today. I would love to see the proper priority being placed on prayer and preaching. And I would love to see a generous, broad, multicultural, and well-organized approach to compassionate and benevolent ministries. And I would love to see power, Holy Spirit, Christ-honoring, gospel-adorning, spiritual power. Lord, make it so in our day. Thanks be to God. Amen. Pastor Paul, I know we're almost out of time here, but I was interested in something you said near the end of the program audio. You pointed out that Stephen was not an apostle. He was a, just a regular guy, and yet the Bible says that signs and wonders were being done through him. So how does that work? I, I seem to recall you saying in a previous episode that one of the main reasons for signs and wonders was to authenticate the apostles as the special representatives of Christ. So are signs and wonders for apostles only, or can anyone do them? Right. Well, I mean, that should be an easy question to answer in the 30 seconds we have left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I believe you. Go, go ahead. The, the short version only. Well, as I said a few episodes ago, I think back when we were talking about Acts chapter 3, 
The primary purpose of signs and wonders was to authenticate the apostolic preaching of the gospel. These signs and wonders were like road flares. God was marking off this movement and this message as the one he wanted people to pay particular attention to. But that doesn't necessarily mean that only the apostles could perform miracles. Here we see Stephen doing signs and wonders. And then in Acts chapter 8, Philip is said to perform miracles as well. And he wasn't an apostle. So first of all, I'd want to say that while the Bible does seem to say that the function of these signs and wonders was to authenticate the apostolic gospel, that doesn't mean that only apostles could perform miracles on God's behalf. I think the miracles performed by Philip and Stephen did serve that purpose. They drew attention to the unique truthfulness and authority of the gospel as preached by the apostles. But then the second thing I think I would want to say is that at the end of the day, God is sovereign. To say that he used a certain tool for a certain purpose at such and such a point in the story is not to say that he could never use that same tool again for another purpose at some point in the story in the future. Hmm, that makes sense. Thanks for taking the time to walk us through that. And as always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.